All right. Well, good morning again, Coastal. This morning we are uh, we're going to look at how uh, the Lord uh, does. In fact, um, uh, we just sang about God being true to His promises, and we're going to look at uh, just how, um, in fact, God is true to His promises, and how it is that He uh, accomplishes His purposes and His plans uh, in this life and in the next life, no matter what. Um, in a lot of ways, this sermon uh, pairs well with Pastor Andrew's sermon last week. Uh, so if you missed that, I'd encourage you to give it a listen. It was a, a, an excellent sermon on uh, just how God chooses people for salvation, not because of anything in them, but because of His own good, unchanging character. Uh, the book of Genesis uh, is really a book that just reminds us of that over and over again, that God accomplishes that which pleases him. God accomplishes that which pleases him. Nothing can, can thwart God's plan. Let that sink in for a moment. There's nothing in heaven. There's nothing on earth. There's nothing under the earth that can thwart the plans of our sovereign God. As a matter of fact, many years ago, Lucifer, the devil, he tried to challenge God's authority. It led to his swift demise, right? God accomplishes that which he pleases, and he has no equal. He has no equal. And we see that time and time again in Scripture. We see it time and time again in our lives, and certainly we're going to see that in our text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn with me to Genesis. Hopefully that's not broken. Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. And, and by the way, if you don't own a Bible, uh, our, if you come to Coastal Community Church we, and you don't own a Bible, take the one in the seat in front of you and take it home and read it and be changed by it. There's no reason for anybody to walk in the doors of Coastal Community Church and leave without a Bible. And so we want you to have a copy of God's Word because God wrote it, and we want you to read it and we want you to be changed about it. But we're going to be in Genesis chapter 29, and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. And our text is about Laban deceiving Jacob for his own gain. Uh, last week, we spent a, a, a considerable amount of time looking at the deception of Jacob and how God saved him anyways. Uh, and ironically enough, in our text today, uh, Jacob has, has met his match the deceiver uh, becomes the deceived. It's, it's poetic, really, isn't it? And as we read through this historical account, I, I, I want you to remember that, that we've all experienced injustices and sufferings at the hands of manipulators and deceivers. And at some point in our lives, we have been the ones who have caused others to suffer. We've been the ones who have inflicted injustice. We have been the deceivers and the manipulators. And so as we're reading through this, my prayer is this word isn't something that we're looking and, and saying, man, this is a piece of history that we're reading, but this is God's living and active word, and it is applicable for our lives, and it, and it should penetrate our hearts and our souls and cause us to cherish Christ and be conformed more into His image and be changed forever. And so our text this morning, Genesis 29, I want to ask two questions of this text that I believe that, 
by God's grace, we'll answer over the course of working through this sermon together. Um, But there are two questions that I think are important and that I think it's okay that we wrestle with. And, uh, And I don't have these questions in your notes. You're more than welcome to jot them down if you'd like. But the first question is this that I'm asking of Genesis 29. Can God's plan be modified or adjusted based on what man does or doesn't do? Can God's plan be modified or adjusted based on what God does or doesn't do? That's question number one that I'm asking of Genesis chapter 29. Second question I'm asking of Genesis 29 is this. Can God use deceivers and manipulators who inflict suffering on others to accomplish his sovereign plan and purpose? Can God use deceivers and manipulators who inflict suffering on others to accomplish his sovereign plan and purpose? And so what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to read Genesis 29 together in its entirety, and, uh, and I'm going to preach a little bit differently than I normally preach, just giving the amount of time, uh, the amount of ground that we need to cover. I'm going to read Genesis 29. I'm going to make some observations about the text and its uh, hit, historical setting. But I'm also, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm also going to give you some takeaways again, so that we can we can be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. And uh, and by God's grace, we will leave here having worshipped Christ and be conform more into his image. And so Genesis chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, here, what did I say? Not 9, 29. Otherwise, it'll get real confusing. Genesis 29, this is the word of the Lord. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered, and the stone on the well's mouth was larged. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We're from Haran. He said, To them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. Pretty short answer there, right? He said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it's well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered today. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we can't until all the flocks are gathered together and the stones rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then... We'll water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? 
Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I'll serve seven years for the younger daughter. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because the love he had for her. How sweet. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Okay, so Jacob got real drunk at this, at this festival here. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we'll give you the other one also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave his female servant Billah to to his daughter Rachel to be a servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. So we're, it's getting lengthy there. And then in verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened his, her womb, but Rachel was, Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased to bear. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is your word. And God, it's, it's difficult for us to, to grasp ancient Near East culture customs, Lord, but uh, your word is living and active, and it has something here for us, God. And so I pray that you would draw us near to yourself, God. I pray that you would build your church, God, by building and equipping your saints. And Lord, I pray for the stony hearts in this room that they would repent of their sin and trust in their only Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me, God, because apart from you, I have nothing good to say. Apart from your word, I have nothing to offer. And so Holy Spirit, help me communicate. Holy Spirit, humble our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, like I said a minute ago, we um, have tasked ourselves to preach through a large section of Genesis over a short amount of time. Um, and so uh, I'm preaching differently than I normally do. I'm going to make observations about the text, but then I'm going to give us some takeaways. And, and, uh, and I would encourage you, um, I don't know if you've known, one, if you're not in a small group, uh, there's really no way for you to benefit in, um, in the way that we think that you should be cared for and benefit. A small group is all about helping you to become a doer of the Word. And so those of you that aren't in small groups, I would encourage you to be in one. Um, those of you that are in small groups, 
uh, our small group questions have changed, and, uh, and I think in the long term it's going to be a good change. And I would encourage you to bring those sermon questions in with you um, as a part of your sermon notes and jot down the things that you're hearing in the sermon um, because I think it will help us become better listeners and receivers of the Word of God. It'll help us to digest the Word of God better so that, again, we can uh, be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so just as a side note, utilize those sermon questions in the, in the resources we make av- available to you. Uh, before we look at Genesis 29, I want to give you a, a refresher from the previous chapter because there's two promises that are given to Jacob by God before he even arrives to see Laban, to meet Laban, okay? And the two promises are this, if you're taking notes. Promise one that God gives Jacob is that his offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. God tells Jacob his offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. The second promise that God gives to Jacob, he says, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I'll bring you back to this land, bring you back to the promised land. How comforting for Jacob to have heard those words, amen? So the promise that his offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and God said that I will be with you, I will keep you wherever you go, and I'll bring you back to this land, this promised land. So remember from last week's sermon, the Lord has sovereignly chose Jacob. And Paul reiterates this for us in Romans chapter 9. I'm not going to go there because we don't have the time to, but in Romans 9, we see the Apostle Paul kind of unpacking what Pastor Andrew preached on last week when, when the Apostle Paul speaks of God loving Jacob and hating Esau there. Um, and, and it's important for us to know that God is with Jacob, not because Jacob's some great guy, because he's not. We saw that last week, right? God's with Jacob because God chooses to be with Jacob. And his choosing to be with Jacob is based on God's character alone, not on anything that Jacob does good, not on anything that Jacob does that's bad. It's based on God's unchanging, his theologians call it immutable character. And God is making a great nation from Jacob, just as he promised to Isaac, Jacob's dad, just as he promised to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. Now, again, because of time, I can't preach verse by verse through this chapter. I would love to, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you what I believe to be some significant parts of this chapter. And this is the first thing I'd like you to notice if you're taking notes. The first is this, Jacob lacks a posture of dependence upon the Lord. Jacob lacks a posture of dependence upon the Lord. We see that in the first three verses. I'm not going to read the first three verses, but he goes there. He sits at this well. He's kind of looking and noticing things that, are, that are, are going on. He notices some shepherds. And then the first time he opens his mouth, really, is when he begins to speak to these shepherds. That's, that's, that's the, the very th- first thing that we see Jacob do. And Jacob is gone. He's gone to this well. He's gone to look for a wife. 
He's not looking for a wife among the pagans, which is what Esau, his brother, decides to do. Jacob is looking for a wife from among his relatives. He's looking for a wife among God's people. God expects Jacob to be equally yoked. So boys and girls, when your parents talk about being equally yoked, what they mean is God, God expects his people to marry his people. That's what God expects, and that's what Jacob's doing. He's in search for a wife among the people of his father, Isaac, and his grandfather, Abraham. And while Jacob's with God, and while the Lord has promised to be with Jacob, there's no sense in our text this morning in Genesis chapter 29 that Jacob is animated or motivated by his faith in the Lord. There seems to be this lack of dependence on the Lord. I want to compare Isaac, uh, or excuse me, I want to compare Jacob just for a moment with Abraham's servant just a few chapters earlier. You can turn there if you have your Bible. If not, you can look up on the screen. But look with me, Genesis chapter 24. Look at this. Abraham, the servant, made this covenant with his master Abraham to go and find Isaac, Jacob's dad, a wife from among God's people. And, and, and here's what we get in verses 12 through 14. And he, the speaking of the servant, <clears throat> said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of the water and the daughters of, men, of the men of the city are coming out to draw water and let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. What a very specific prayer. What a man who's dependent upon the Lord. Jacob is not like Abraham's servant. Jacob is not like Abraham's servant. Many years ago, Abraham's servant, he was sitting, think about this, Abraham's servant was sitting at the very well that Jacob is sitting at, looking for a wife for Jacob's dad. Now, Jacob is there many years later looking for a wife. And we have Abraham's servant praying in this posture of dependence upon the Lord. And we have Jacob, who the first thing he does is look around and say, where are the pretty women? Hey, shepherds, have you seen some pretty women? Comes to this well. There's no prayer Right? There's no, there's no posture of dependence asking the Lord to make his path a success. And here's the interesting thing. This is what blows my mind here, right? Jacob knows the Lord. Jacob isn't some pagan worshiper. God's made promises to Jacob. We started the sermon by looking at those promises. God's made promises to Jacob. Jacob isn't some pagan He's not some idol worshiper. Here's the takeaway for us this morning. Jacob's lack of dependence on the Lord should make us aware of our own lack of dependence on the Lord. 
Jacob's lack of dependence on the Lord. I don't know if it's up there or not, Steve, but the takeaway, Jacob's lack of dependence on the Lord should make us aware of our own lack of dependence on the Lord. And this, is, this is convicting to me, Coastal. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm charged to stand up here and to exhort the Word of God to you, to, to, to preach the Word of God to you. And, and as I've prepared for this sermon, and I've thought about it and meditated on it and prayed over it, and even as I stand up here right now and, and I preach to you, I'm so aware of the times that I'm not dependent on the Lord. I'm so aware of the times that I'm not dependent on the strength of the Lord. I'm so aware of the times that I I tend to manipulate things or force things to work or or minister out of my own abilities or minister out of some, some empty place. And it's during those times that I'm missing out on so much that the Lord offers to me. I'm missing out on so much the Lord offers to me. You know what the Lord offers to me? He offers me Himself. He offers me Himself. The Lord of the universe. Right? We don't serve some deistic God that set the world in motion and say, let's see how it plays out. Right? The God of the universe knows me. And He knows you. And His invitation is for you to commune with Him. He offers Himself to you. Paul, through the Word, under the power of the Holy Spirit, reminds us of this. Ephesians 6.10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Right? I'm, it doesn't say, be strong. Joey, be strong. You should be strong. What are you doing? Be strong, Joey. It says, be strong in the strength of his might, in the strength of God's might. Apostle Paul commends in Galatians 5, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Man, I read that verse, and I meditate on that verse sometimes, and because I'm such a weirdo, I'm thinking, when I'm praying that prayer, and this, is, this is literally what I'm, what I'm thinking Joey, walk in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. I know I look like a dummy doing this, but walk in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. Right? Every step that I take, right? Every breath that I breathe, be strong. There's this generous offer to us as Christians to walk and to minister in this place of strength that's not our own, right? This this foreign strength. And like I said, the Lord doesn't, he doesn't expect us to be strong. We're weak. Do you understand that? We're weak. If you think you're strong, you're deceiving yourselves. Men of coastal, if you think you're strong, you're deceiving yourselves. The Lord tells us that he's strong, right? You're not strong. He's strong. And he offers his strength to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And in this life, we struggle, don't we? We struggle with sin and the Remedy isn't to modify our behavior, try to conjure up some strength on our own. The way we overcome, as Paul says, gratifying our selfish desires, as he said in that Galatians 5 passage, is by walking in the Spirit, one foot in front of the other, walking in the Spirit. It's by being needy. It's by being dependent upon the Lord for every step of our journey. Jacob lacked this dependent posture upon the Lord. His life was full of examples of that. His life was full of examples where he took matters into his own hands. Pastor Andrew, again, he spent time on that last week. But believer, let's make it practical for us, right? Examine yourself. I have to examine myself this morning as the pastor preaching to you. Where do you lack dependence on the Lord? And what can we do as believers to increase our posture of dependence? What can we do to heighten our awareness of our need for our Savior? Because this is difficult for us as Christians, especially as Christians in America. It's difficult for us, right? Compared to the rest of the world, we're so wealthy. We're so wealthy. I don't want for anything. I don't want for anything. And in a lot of ways, I believe this hinders our ability to see how the Lord's the one that provides everything, right? I want you to think about something for a moment. Every single one of you that is sitting in a seat in this auditorium that can hear the sound of my voice, you're sitting there because God said, sit. Every one of you that can hear my voice, you hear my voice because the God of the cosmos said, hear. Every one of you that's actively breathing, and the reason why I haven't dropped dead on this stage is because God says, breathe. Breathe. Every one of you that are sitting in this auditorium right now and you say what Joey's talking about is foolish and it's primitive and it's anti-intellectual and it's stupid, you're doing that because God said reject. Even your rejection is under the hands of a sovereign God. You're utterly dependent on the Lord and you don't even realize how far that extends. One of the reasons I think that we're not aware of this is because we numb our sensitivity through materialistic stuff along the way. And somewhere along the line, we begin to believe that we're self-made, right? We're this, this, especially as us Americans, we're this pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of culture. And we teach that to our children and we teach that to our grandchildren. And and, and, And that delusion is just perpetuated generation after generation. And I'm not against hard work, so don't hear me saying I'm I'm against hard work. I'm not against hard work. We should be working hard, but what you should be teaching your children, what you should be teaching yourself and your children and your grandchildren is everything you have, God owns it, and it's a gift from Him. He's allowing you to steward your life He's allowing you to steward your kids. He's allowing you to steward your possessions. And he's allowing for you to do it for a very, very, very brief time. 
But don't believe the delusion for one moment that you own anything. You own nothing. I own nothing. Everything belongs to God. You aren't self-made. I'm not self-made. And whether you acknowledge it or not, you are wholly and utterly dependent on the God who created you. So what are some tangible things that we can do to help us gain this perspective, right? How can we heighten our awareness? I just want to give you three things that, that, um, that I aim to do regularly, that I'm growing in, that I am um, uh, have by no means uh, am I saying, here, here's, here's, here I am, I've mastered this. What I'm saying is, I'm on this journey, please join me, because it's, it's heightening my awareness. The first date thing is this. It's Lord's Day corporate, and I'm not going to tell you anything new, by the way, before I get to this, right? I'm not going to give you some new information. I'm reminding you of stuff that you hear week in and week out. It's just whether or not the Holy Spirit's allowing it to penetrate your heart. The first thing is the Lord's Day corporate worship. The fourth commandment, which I believe is in full effect, hadn't been abolished. God didn't abolish the fourth commandment, which means remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday because we believe that we serve a, re- a bodily, eternally resurrected Savior. Amen? Amen? Right? We come here as a corporate body of believers and we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth so that our souls can be refreshed in the Lord and so that the God of the cosmos may be glorified. Jen was talking about blessed. We're talking about glorifying the God of the cosmos. The Puritans called today what we're doing the marketplace of the soul, man. Our soul should be lifted. Our thoughts should be lifted to where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we oftentimes do everything but that. Here's a heart-prodding question. Here's a question for you this morning. How much of our time was spent planning our Super Bowl party plans last week rather than preparing our hearts to have an encounter with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? I'm going to say something. The NFL doesn't own Sundays. Okay? I'm I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be flippant. I really mean this. I'm sick of I'm I'm sick of it. Sunday is the Lord's day. Sunday is the Lord's day. And we should be lifting our minds to we are missing out. We are cheapening this day that God has set aside and called holy worship me. And we spend all this time planning this stupid little party about these stupid football teams instead of worshiping the God who sent Jesus Christ to save us from the pits of hell. This is the Lord's Day Coastal. Nobody else owns it. God owns this day. And unless Christians begin to redeem this day as the Lord's Day until we start taking the fourth commandment seriously, I'm already going past the time I should be going past, so I'm sorry. But until we start taking Sunday morning seriously, that ain't going to change the culture. We can complain about the broader culture all we want and how ungodly they are. They're ungodly because we're ungodly. We lead through our own repentance. 
Stop calling them to repent if we ain't repenting. Stop, it. Stop talking about how they ain't coming to church when all we can think about is some dumb football game. This is the Lord's day. Second thing. If you want to email me about that, my email is sean at gocoastal.org. <laughs> Okay. Second thing, Bible intake. Bible intake. That's important, right? Pastor Sean talked about this a few a few weeks ago, but but our growing concern at Coastal is that people don't read their Bibles. Statistics are showing right now 67% of people that claim to be Christians never engage with the word of God. Never engage in the word of God. And I encourage you to write this down because I want you to remember it. The reason why Christians uh, there's people that call themselves Christians. The reason why you don't read God's Word is because you don't believe it's God's Word. That's plain and simple enough, right? Reason why you ain't, if, if you find yourself not reading God's Word, let me tell you what the problem is. You don't believe it's God's Word. You may give lip service that, that it's God's Word, but you don't believe that it's God's Word. You don't believe it has any real tangible power. You don't believe it has any authority over your life. You don't believe it's sufficient for you. If you did, it would consume your thoughts. If you did, it would bug the heck out of you that you're not saturating your mind in it. God has spoken. It has been documented. And we have an entire canon of Scripture where God's saying, listen. The third is this, prayer, prayer. Right, We're so quick to go to other people with our concerns and requests, and I'm all about going to people with concerns and requests. We're called by Scripture to bear one another's burdens, but I'm convicted in my own life that I'm so quick to go to everybody else to pray for me or to pray about certain issues before I go to the Lord. Right, I, I want to I wanna establish this discipline to confess my neediness to God before I confess my neediness to anybody else. I want everybody else to to know that I'm needy and to be praying for me and all of these things. But the very first thing I need to be doing is being on my face before the Lord of the universe saying, God, I need you. I need you, Lord. Coastal, these are countercultural disciplines, countercultural disciplines. There's no shortcut. They don't release these happy chemicals of, 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 of dopamine and serotonin and endorphins and oxytocin, right? This, this isn't instant gratification. These are disciplines that are detoxing you from all the junk food you're used to eating the other six days of the week. Amen. That was point one. <clears throat> I'm trying to get to point two. Point two, the, the rest to go quicker. <clears throat> Laban's deceit rivaled Jacob's deceitful tendencies. Jacob's deceit rivaled Laban's deceit rivaled Jacob, Jacob's deceitful tendencies. Laban, he wasn't a straightforward man, right? In past chapters, we, we learned about Jacob's ability to deceive and manipulate. And here, Jacob, he's met his match, right? He's encountered the deceitful Laban, Rebekah's brother. Uh, verse 13 talks about how Laban runs to him, right? Laban, he ran and he embraced, and I believe, and kissed Jacob with motives. He did this with motives. He did this with motives. Most, most scholars believe that there was something behind Laban's happiness here, and I think they're right. This wasn't just some f- happy family reunion, 
Again, if we go back to Abraham's servant when he found Rebekah for Isaac here many years ago, Rebekah's family, they were made very wealthy in exchange for Rebekah. And it was Laban as a kid. And you can go back and check me, chapter 24, verse 30. But it was Laban as a kid who noticed the nose ring and the bracelets that were given to Rebekah in exchange for her hand in marriage. Abraham's family made them very, very wealthy. So perhaps many years later, Laban, with the memory of that exchange still fresh in his mind, he's thinking all these riches that he can now receive from the grandson of Abraham. Laban smells opportunity. He ain't going to waste it. He's going to go after it. He loves possessions, and he notices something even in this short exchange with Jacob. He says in verse 14, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. My bone and my flesh. I think what Laban's saying is you're cut from the same cloth. A deceiver knows a deceiver, right? It, certainly he could, he could mean relative here, but I think there's this double meaning. I think Laban knows that Jacob is his type of man, one who will deceive, one who will be dishonest. And Laban has him stay for a month, maybe to earn his trust. I don't know. And then Laban tricked and enslaved him. Laban tricked and enslaved Jacob. Most of us know how the story goes. We read it already. Jacob marries Rachel. or He, he wants to marry Rachel, ends up with with Leah because of the deceit. And all of a sudden, Laban's got him. He's got him. So the one who has done the deceiving, Jacob, becomes deceived and enslaved in our passage this morning. Here's our takeaway. We're no better than Laban or Jacob. We deceive, lie, and manipulate in order to indulge our sinful passions and desires. And this ultimately enslaves us. We're no better than Laban or Jacob. We deceive, lie, manipulate in order to indulge our sinful passions and desires. And this ultimately enslaves us. Just as we are often like Jacob in that we lack a dependence on the Lord, so are we like Jacob and Laban in that we often sin to indulge our sinful passions and desires. Sean said it best a few weeks ago, we make sinful decisions based on the immediate. That phrase he said has has stuck with me. He said, we sell our birthright for a cup of soup. Right? You guys remember that? Sell our birthright for a cup of soup. Third, God uses the deceit of Laban to accomplish his plan. This is when we get to begin to peek behind the curtain of what in the world's going on here with all this manipulation and deceit and worldliness. Right? It needs to be said Laban's wrong. Laban's wicked. Laban is deceitful in his actions against his daughters and against Jacob. But the Lord works through the disobedience of Laban to accomplish his plan and purpose that he decreed to do in eternity past. Right? You see, God isn't surprised by Laban's wickedness. He's using Laban like a pawn in a chess game. 
just as he planned to do before the foundation of the world in order to accomplish his plan for the nations through the offspring of Jacob. So look, at, look with me how God accomplishes his purpose through Laban's deceit, and I'll go through this quickly. Leah, the oldest, the one that Jacob didn't want, she has sons. Leah has sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And get this. In the fullness of time, Jesus would be born of the house of David, of the tribe of Judah, the son of the unloved Leah. In the fullness of time, Jesus would be born of the house of David, of the tribe of Judah, the son of the unloved Leah. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, came from the tribe of Judah. He came from the unloved Leah, the wife that Jacob despised. This unwanted, unloved wife is in the same biological lineage as Jesus in his humanity. So here's here's our third and, and final takeaway. The Lord orders our steps and accomplishes his purposes. Nothing can thwart his plan. Many times he uses deceitful and even evil intentions of man to bring about his good purposes. All right, think of Judas and Jesus. The father sovereignly used wicked Judas to accomplish his will of crushing the son. Right, Judas was a betrayer, he was a deserter, he was a coward, and he wasn't a part of God's chosen people. But God used Judas so that Christ would be betrayed, so that Christ would be crucified, so that Christ would endure God's wrath, so that Christ would die, so that Christ would rise again bodily and eternally, so that Christ would ascend to the right hand of the Father, so that Christ would intercede for his elect for each and every one of us who call ourselves Christians. The Lord really does order our steps and accomplish his purposes. The Lord, Job learned learned this through immense suffering when he declared in chapter 42 of Job, he says, I know God, you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah says this, uh, the Lord says this through Isaiah rather, for I am God, there is no other, I'm God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Lamentations, Jeremiah, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of grief, he has the audacity to say about God, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it. It's clear that the Lord is doing exactly as he wills at all times. So Christians, stop behaving and speaking as if the world's going in 
to go into hell in a handbasket. Stop behaving as if God's been kicked out of our country or out of this world. Nobody has the authority to kick God out of our country. Nobody has the authority to kick God out of our world. Where in the world did we get that garbage from? Get your the the devil. That's absolutely right. We need to get our theology straight, right? No man has the authority to strip God of his rule. He's the Lord. There is no other. There's no one that compares. Everything that happens passes through the hands of of our sovereign Lord. And as believers, we know and can have confidence in that he's using every circumstance, every suffering, every deceit to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when he said, I will make your offspring as numerous as the dust on the earth. And how is he doing that? Because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they had a lot of kids, but not as much as the dust of the earth. I'll tell you how he's doing it. He's doing it through the obedience of Christians that say, you know what? I'm going to submit my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to herald the gospel to every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and I'm going to make spiritual sons and daughters of the Most High King. Israel was always more than ethnic Israel. Israel was always more than ethnic Israel. Israel is God's people. So whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, if you're in Christ, you are a part of God's people. Don't put this up on the screen, Steve. I just want to read it so we can hear it because I'm running out of time. And it says, Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Every single person that's in Christ is Abraham's offspring. Every single person in Christ is heirs according to the promise. So the Lord who came from the tribe of Judah, Leah's son, is making spiritual sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as numerous as the dust of the earth and as numerous as the stars in the sky. The gospel is far-reaching. As Paul says in Galatians 3, the gospel doesn't describe discriminate. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female are all welcome in Christ Jesus. And when God in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when he makes all things new, we'll look around and it's going to be colorful. It's going to be colorful. It's going to be culturally diverse because God is building his kingdom with people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language. And when we stand before the Lord, we'll stand together as sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Lord is building his church, right? And no man can thwart that. And I have great confidence in that. And so would you go with me to the Lord in prayer? Let's thank him for that this morning. Lord, I thank you, God, that you are sovereign. You're completely sovereign. You're truly sovereign, Lord. There's nothing that can can thwart your plans. There's nothing that feeble man can do to sabotage 
what you've declared from the beginning. And so we look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith, Lord, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.